3: It's science, but not as you know
4: it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, and welcome to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith. Hello, Cat. And with me, Kat Arnie. And on this week's show, we will be hearing how scientists have found a way to reawaken dormant stem cells in the adult brain. Wakey, wakey! And it means they may have been able to find a way to repair damage caused by diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Also, scientists have discovered a parasite that turns a caterpillar into a body card. This is amazing. It's kind of a zombie wasp thing. Uh, it defends the thing that it's infected to the death. And we've also got news of a new technique to obtain fingerprints from things that were previously unfingerprintable. And also, we'll be finding how all that works in just a minute. Chris.
2: Thanks, Kat. Now, this week, we're turning back the clock several thousand years to hear how scientists have followed the clues in what's probably one of the most famous ancient Greek stories of all time, and they've applied it to real life to find the locations described in that story, the Odyssey. And we'll also be hearing how they've done that and what they've found so far later in the programme. Plus, we'll also be recreating what's probably one of the best-known experiments of all time in this week's kitchen science, and it involves the guy who is arguably the world's first official naked scientist.
5: And this was what made him shout Eureka and run down the street naked, dripping out of his bath. That's exactly right, Ben.
2: That's right. Ben and Dave have managed to get hold of £10,000 worth of real gold to recreate Eureka Streaker, Archimedes' famous experiment. But will it work?
4: I'm more interested to find out where did they get all that gold from? Any banks been missing anything? It's probably Dave and Ben. Anyway, talking of things that might be a bit fishy...
1: My question is how do fish like salmon cope while being able to live parts of their life in both saltwater and freshwater?
4: And that uh, will be the answer to this week's question of the week, which will be coming up later.
2: Thank you very much, Kat. So, if you've got a question for us about archaeology, Archimedes, or ancient Greece, then do get in touch. Chris at the
0: The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net.
4: Now here's a story from this week's news about adult stem cells. These are the immortal cells that can regenerate old or damaged tissue in our bodies. Scientists are really interested in these because they have lots of potential for treating diseases but there's fewer ethical problems than using stem cells taken from embryos or foetuses. So scientists at the Shepards Eye Research Institute in Boston have been studying stem cells in the brain. Now their story starts earlier this year when the researchers led by Dr Dong Feng Chen, they found that stem cells are Actually, scattered throughout the brain, and he usually kept asleep by chemical signals sent from neighbouring cells. Now, it had been previously thought that stem cells were only found in two certain bits of the brain a part called the uh, subgranular zone, that's in the hippocampus where you do learning and memory, and somewhere called the subventricular zone, which is where you kind of smell things. So, it was thought that only these areas had stem cells that could regenerate bits of the brain. But uh, in a few months ago, in a paper, the team showed that actually stem cells are all over the brain. But they're kept quiet by signals from cells around them called astrocytes that kind of help to hold the brain together.
2: Do we know what those signals are?
4: Well, this is what they've just done in this paper. They've actually been comparing the chemical signals from the astrocytes that surround other bits of the brain with the astrocytes that surround the cells uh, in the parts that we know can regenerate. And they found that there are two molecules called Ephrin A2 and Ephrine A3. These are signalling molecules and they're the things that keep stem cells silent in the rest of the brain. They, they so they're not sleep. in
2: the bits that have active stem cells, but they are in the bits that don't.
4: Exactly. They're the bits in where the stem cells are quiet. These molecules are keeping the stem cells asleep. And in the bits where the stem cells can be active in this subventricular zone, there's a molecule produced called sonic hedgehog. Yes, it is named after the computer game character. And that helps to wake up stem cells in those areas. So now the scientists have these molecules that they know what they do, they can start playing with them. And the next thing they're going to do is hopefully go into an animal model of diseases such as Parkinson's or or Alzheimer's and see if they can kind of wake up the stem cells in these damaged brains.
2: Because this begs the question, if you've got these stem cells, why don't we use them normally?
4: That is a very good question. Um, Presumably because uh, there are controls on them to stop them multiplying out of control. Maybe it's something to do with evolution, who knows? Which makes
2: you worry a bit if you turn them on, what the possible downside could be.
4: Well, exactly, and those are why these experiments really need to be done. It's certainly, it's very exciting, it's got a lot of potential, but there are a lot of questions, yeah.
2: Thanks, Kat. Well, let's turn to the animal world now and the discovery of an amazing parasite which actually lives in the Amazonian rainforest. And there's a researcher called Amir Grossman who works at the University of Amsterdam and he's teamed up with researchers in Brazil. And they have got a paper in this week's PLOS One where they've discovered this parasite. It's a kind of wasp and it lays... Eggs inside the body of a caterpillar for a species of moth called the geometrid moth species. So this parasitoid wasp, which is a member of the glyptapanteles family, say flies again. along. <laughs> it's easy for them to say <laughs> It It flies along until it sees one of these caterpillars, and the wasp then implants in the abdomen of the caterpillar about eighty eggs for the for its own species, and the. Eggs then hatch inside the body of the caterpillar, and over the next two weeks or so, you wouldn't know there was anything wrong. It's just the eggs hatch, and they turn into little wasp larvae inside the caterpillar, and they presumably eat some of the caterpillar tissue or absorb energy from the caterpillar to grow, but the caterpillar carries on moving and eating as normal. But then, after about 11 to 16 days, something interesting happens, because the caterpillar comes to a standstill, and then, watching very carefully, the researchers saw that these larvae make miniature holes in the side of the caterpillar, and they come... Out, They exit or vacate ah! the premises from the caterpillar And they form a pile on the leaf Next to the caterpillar And they then form chrysalises In other words they pupate In the same way that a butterfly or a moth would pupate So they make this little pile of chrysalis Next door to the caterpillar But the caterpillar doesn't die It remains alive But what it does is instead of being an egg incubator It turns into a bodyguard instead Because they notice that whenever any kind of predator That might want to eat these chrysalis sitting next door Came near, the caterpillar would rear up and lash its head around, which was sufficient 50% of the time to scare off potential predators.
4: Like a zombie basically, a zombie caterpillar being controlled by these things. But the big question is,
2: why does the caterpillar do this and how does it do that? So the team micro-dissected some of these caterpillars and they found that not all of the parasites leave. They always found that there was one or two left behind inside the body of the caterpillar, so what they think, but they can't prove yet, what they think is going on, is that those, those larvae that remain behind, some of them invade the nervous system and they start to control the behaviour of the caterpillar so that it becomes this bodyguard and protects the developing wasp because seven days later these chrysalis hatch and outcome mature wasps that can then fly off and re other moths and the caterpillar then dies so there's nothing in it for the caterpillar so there must be some kind of controlling part going on on the part of these these parasites, they just don't know how it's manipulating the behaviour of the caterpillar but there is a model from other species, things like ants some ants also get parasites into their brains and this controls the brain of the ant and makes its behaviour change so it's more likely to be picked on by birds, well perhaps it's similar we just don't know yet, but an Zomb- intriguing story
4: Zombie insects, isn't nature amazing? <laughs> anyway another thing that's amazing in human in nature is is the human brain it's, it's probably one of the most amazing works of biological engineering that we have and one of our greatest challenges as scientists is is to understand how our brain has evolved. And some researchers now writing in the journal Nature Neuroscience have actually shed some light on the origins of the brain and how we developed such large, complex ones. Well, oh, I did anyway. Maybe not, not in your
2: case, I was going, oh, I was going to say. Going
4: to say. Oh, I was going to say, not in your case, be <laughs> to it. Anyway... Um, Currently, scientists think that the connections between nerve cells known as synapses are similar in most animals from, you know, tiny worms to humans. And it's simply the increase in the number of nerve cells and the number of synapses that makes a more complicated brain. So basically, big brain, lots of nerves, lots of synapses makes you clever. Small brain, not very many nerves or synapses not so clever. You're a worm, basically. But now scientists at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute have been studying the makeup of the proteins at synapses in different uh, species. So all the way from very simple yeast cells, who don't really have synapses, but they have some of these proteins through simple organisms all the way up to humans. And looking at the number of different molecules that are produced in the synapses, they've looked at around 600 different molecules just found at synapses. And they found that, There's probably two major leaps, major changes in the number of these proteins. So complicated animals like humans, vertebrates, have this full range of about 600 molecules. Invertebrates probably have about half. And very simple, single-celled organisms like yeast have only about a quarter. So that tells us uh, that these two points in evolution, when we went from being one cell to many cells and from being uh, invertebrates to vertebrates, there was this big leap in complexity in the synapses and the molecules that are there. So it's not just the size, it's actually how complex you are that counts as well. But
2: I always knew that. I'm always telling my wife that. <laughs> well, also this week, forensic scientists at the University of Leicester, they've been working with the Northamptonshire Police, have announced a really major breakthrough in crime busting and crime detection techniques and it could actually lead to hundreds of cold cases being reopened because this is the work of Dr John Bond and he's a scientific support officer for Northamptonshire Police he's also a fellow of Leicester University so John thanks for joining us um, you have found a way of r- sort of getting fingerprints from surfaces that couldn't previously be fingerprinted so uh, how does this actually work?
6: Well basically we've been looking at new ways of enhancing fingerprint deposits And that's the secretion of sweat that you leave really on any surface that you might touch with your fingers. And for many years now, the police in this country and worldwide have had a range of conventional techniques that all require some form of physical or chemical interaction with the deposit that you leave behind. They either stick to it and make it visible or they chemically react with it and maybe change its colour so you can see them.
2: So that must mean that there are physical constraints over what sorts of surfaces can be fingerprinted?
6: Absolutely. Smooth non-porous works very well for things like powder um, and a technique using superglue where the superglue actually polymerizes uh, and forms a white strands actually on the fingerprint deposit and on things like papers where the fingerprint deposit might soak in. There's a range of chemicals that react with things like the amino acid that you leave in your sweat. But all of those techniques, they all require that deposit still to be there. If you remove the deposit, all conventional
2: techniques will fail. So this would be, for example, washing a surface or wiping a surface on the part of the criminal to try and clean off the evidence?
6: Yes, uh, and that would be a very good example of that. And it could also be extreme environmental conditions that might, for example, as you said, wash away or may even vaporise the fingerprint deposit.
2: So how does your new technique work?
6: What we've been looking at, which is a phenomenon we've found, is that fingerprint deposits will tend to corrode metal surfaces. There's some constituents in the fingerprint deposit that on metals like brass and copper will corrode the metal to an extent that even when you've then got rid of the residue totally you can sometimes actually see an image of where the fingerprint was in the metal or where that's not possible we've developed a technique to actually enhance that corrosion and make the fingerprint become visible again
2: So how do you then visualise the fingerprint in the form of its corrosion pattern on that surface?
6: What we do Chris, we take the metal and apply an electrical potential to it of the order of two and a half thousand volts we then apply a very, very fine conducting powder, very similar to photocopier toning powder. What we've discovered is that that will preferentially adhere to the metal at the points where the corrosion has occurred, which are coincident with the original fingerprint ridge patterns, so you get an image of where the fingerprint was in this black powder.
2: And why does it stick just where the fingerprint is? Why does it preferentially adhere there?
6: Well, what we've discovered is in the areas of corrosion, the potential is a few volts less than the 2,500 volts that you apply. So when the conducting powder is streaming across the surface of the metal, it takes on 2,500 volts, it gets the potential that the bulk of the metal is at. At these points of lower potential, it seems to then sit in that area and take the lower potential and then not have enough energy to get back up out of that sort of potential well and it resides in the areas of lower potential.
2: And then how do you translate the photocopier powder, the toner, into a physical image you can see?
6: It just appears as a black image against the contrast of the copper or the brass metal. You can actually just see it sitting there.
2: And what sorts of things do you think you could apply this to which would help to solve new cases?
6: A very good practical example of this, and it's very fortunate, is that most um, bullet casings are made of brass, and we've already been able to show in some of our research but a fingerprint deposited on a gun cartridge case prior to being loaded into the gun, which was then e- enhanced after the gun has been discharged, can reveal that fingerprint with this uh, black conducting powder. So for the first time, we can actually get a fingerprint of who was loading the gun. And
2: are the police actually using this actively now, or will there be a trial period before it can be admitted as evidence into, say, a court of law?
6: Well, we have demonstrated... Um, the practical use of it with these gun casings and we've now been approached by a number of police forces in the UK uh, and also um, a prosecuting attorney in the US that have live and sometimes historical cases with gun cartridges and people saying to us look this hasn't worked conventionally we haven't got anything on it we can't do any more have a go with your uh, corrosion technique.
2: John thank you very much for joining us to talk about your work. Thank you. There was Dr John Bond from Leicester University and Northamptonshire Police explaining how a new technique can find fingerprints on things like metal surfaces even after they've been scrubbed or burned. Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arnie. Now, a couple of questions have come in this week. Kat, this one, interesting, from Adam. He said, does putting bananas in the fridge make them poisonous? My, my family have told me this, but I'm sure it's a myth.
4: It is. This is a bit of an old wives' tale, and I've found it repeated elsewhere as well. People going, my mother said I should never put bananas in the fridge or I'm going to die. Uh, basically, this is not true. Bananas are not poisonous. And in fact, they do get refrigerated um, along their journey to from wherever they grow in tropical places to you. But I did find out some interesting things about bananas that you probably know. Um, they produce a gas called ethylene or ethene, and this is used to ripen fruit. So actually, if you've got something that's a bit hard, you know, some hard fruit, you want to ripen it up, stick it in a bag with a ripe banana and it will ripen nice and quickly works with other bananas too and, also, and tomatoes,
2: doesn't it? You can get yes. tomatoes if they're a bit green, the, the yeah. ones that have fallen off the bush a bit soon in your in your greenhouse, for example. Put exactly. them with some bananas. Whack
4: them in with some bananas, because um, bananas ripen really quickly. And the other thing is, though, if you do put your bananas in the fridge, they won't poison you, but they will go black. And this is because bananas have really sensitive cells in their skin, um, and they—it's thought that they're they catani bananas. They are yes, really sensitive, very sensitive, delicate things, and they get damaged very easily probably below about 12 degrees centigrade they can get damaged and they uh, release enzymes and this is what causes that black oxidation so that's actually a bruise. that
2: physically is injury to the yeah to the it's a whole
4: bruise on the skin of the banana but actually the banana inside will be fine it's just the outside skin so peel it it'll be nice and you can keep them fresh in the fridge but they will go black now we've got a question for you. This show is all about you know, archaeology. We're searching for the truth behind Odysseus's island of Ithaca. So we have a bit of an archaeological question for you, Chris. And it's from Paul, who's in New Zealand, and it's about carbon dating. And he says, if a carbon atom is in existence at the beginning of the Earth and spends some of its time in bacteria, then fish, then animals and so on, um, and then it, it gets into a tree, and uh, for example, into furniture, and then we try and carbon date the furniture... Aren't we just carbon dating, you know, bacteria? How does it really work?
2: Ah, well, the key to carbon dating is that the carbon isn't the carbon that's been on Earth ever since the Earth was formed. The carbon that's involved in carbon dating is carbon that's been newly made. And where that comes from is when radiation from the sun hits the Earth's atmosphere, it interacts with nitrogen, and nitrogen-14 has a neutron added to it and it becomes carbon-14, that's radioactive carbon. This then circulates in the atmosphere and because that process is happening at roughly the same rate continuously the amount of carbon that's carbon-14 in the atmosphere is roughly continuous. Most of it ends up in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide so you have 14C carbon dioxide plants then pick that up in their process of photosynthesis and they turn it into sugar. You then eat the plant so all the time that you're alive you're gaining radioactive carbon in your body which you incorporate into your body and the level that you end up with in your body will be roughly constant because you're taking it in at a roughly constant rate from the environment. So the ratio of radioactive to non-radioactive carbon should be the same all the time you or a plant are alive.
4: So when you're metabolising basically. Exactly.
2: But then when you die you stop adding new carbon 14 to your body but the carbon 14 you've already got starts to break down because it's radioactive. The half-life is about 5,500 years or so. So when you find an ancient specimen all you have to do is to compare how many carbon-14 atoms are in it to the number of carbon-12 atoms, the ratio, and that tells you how long it was since it was last alive, and this gives you a ballpark figure for its age.
4: And that's assuming that the production of carbon-14 and incorporation is the same now as it was thousands and thousands of years ago.
2: Scientists have to make that assumption, but it's presumed to be a fairly reasonable and accurate way to do it, yeah. So that's basically um, how carbon dating works. In fact, the guy we have to credit is Willard Libby, who discovered it in the 1940s, got the Nobel Prize for it, actually.
4: Very smart chap. Anyway, you are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Kat Arnie, And still to come, we are going to be finding out how modern science has helped to unravel a mystery that's over 2,000 years old.
2: But first, Ben and Dave have got into the Greek spirit of the show and they haven't sunk a whole bottle of raki or something. <laughs> In fact, they've recreated a very famous experiment for this week's Kitchen Science.
5: Welcome to Kitchen Science. I've come round to Dave Ansell's house again and every time I come here he gets that little bit more... Bling. A few weeks ago we were here and he was making his own diamonds, and today I find that he's covered his living room table with gold coins. Dave, what's going on? Where did you get
7: this from? Well, we've been lent a fair amount of gold coins by a very kind listener of ours.
5: There must be thousands of pounds worth of gold here. Why would we need this gold?
7: Well, as the theme of this show is Greek science, we thought we'd try and recreate the really famous experiment which Archimedes did just over 2,000 years ago.
5: And Archimedes, I believe, was the original naked scientist. If I remember rightly, Archimedes was given a challenge by King Hero of Syracuse. The king had commissioned a beautiful, beautiful gold crown, but he didn't trust the goldsmith. He didn't think that it was pure gold. Now, this left Archimedes with quite a problem. How could he tell whether or not this was pure gold? Without melting it down or hammering it into a lump, he needed to work it out. So, Dave... How did he do it?
7: Well, Archimedes knew something very useful about gold for this purpose. He knew that gold was about 19 times denser than water is. That means that every milliliter of gold weighs about 19.3 grams. And density is something's mass divided by its volume. Now, it's very easy for Archimedes to work out something's mass. All you do is put it on the scales. So we've got three different kinds of gold coins here. and We're going to try and see which of them are actually gold. So the first thing we're going to do is try weighing them.
5: And how many of each coin are we going to weigh?
7: We're going to try weighing about 10 of each coin. So we'll start off with the first pile.
5: OK, and we'll just put the first pile on Dave's digital scales. It did feel very heavy, so I expect this to come out quite high. 312.6 grams. This is quite heavy. Is that what you expected, Dave?
7: Yeah, these are some Canadian coins, and yeah, it's a fair amount of weight there.
5: OK, and the next pile. Now, these coins, to me, look a little bit bigger, so I expect they would be heavier. Probably will be. We'll find out. And they come out to... Yep, as I predicted, 340.6 grams, a little bit heavier than the Canadian coins. Where are these ones from? These are South African. Now, these ones are are even smaller than the first one, so I expect these will be a bit lighter. And these are only 18.6 grams. Um, Well, they are an awful lot lighter, Dave. Where are they from?
7: Um, I think these are
5: good British coins. Excellent. Good British coins weighing only 18.6 grams. Okay, so now we know how much these piles of gold coins weigh. But how are we going to find out the volume? Well,
7: this is where Archimedes had his really great idea, in the bath. He had a really full bath, he got into the bath, you he noticed that water fell out all over the floor. And he was clever enough to work out that the water doesn't change its size. So the amount of water that fell out of the bath was exactly the same as his volume when he got into it. It doesn't matter what shape he is or what shape the object is you put in the bath, the amount of water being displaced out of the bath will be exactly the same as the volume
5: of the object. So this would mean that he could put the crown into a full bath, measure how much water spilled out, and then he'd know the amount of water that was displaced, and so he'd know the volume of the crown. And if he'd already measured its mass, then he could work out its density. And this was what made him shout, Eureka! And run down the street naked, dripping out of his bath. That's exactly right, Ben. Now we're going to try and recreate what he did.
7: Possibly not the running down the street naked, but the actual science behind it. So what we've got is a small bottle with a tube coming out the side of it. And this is going to represent
5: the bath, so this is our supply of water.
7: Yeah, that's right. It's just big enough at the top so you can put coins in it. And I've got my scales again. And I'm going to put a small glass on the scales, point the tube over the top of the glass, and then just top up the bottle
5: with water so it just starts to overflow. And so the idea is that any water we displace will come down the tube and then you'll measure the weight of the water on your weighing scales. Now, surely it's the volume of the water we need to know. Yes, but we know that water has a density of about one gram per milliliter. So we can assume from the weight of water that that will be equivalent to the volume. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. So we better get that topped up. In fact, so topped up that it's dripping down the tube. So if we put anything in there, it'll displace the water out.
7: Yes, that's right. There's one thing I'm going to do to this just to improve it slightly over what Archimedes could have done. I'm going to add some washing up
5: liquid. OK, well, obviously he wouldn't have had access to washing up liquid. This was 2,000 years ago. But why are we doing this? Surely we don't, well, we don't need to clean these coins. Well, there's one problem you can get with this experiment
7: because water has quite a strong surface tension. It can form big droplets at the end of the tube and all come out in big globs rather than very slowly and accurately
5: like we want. So that would mean that the surface tension would keep some of the water clinging on and we wouldn't be able to accurately measure the amount that had been displaced. Yeah, that's right. And washing up liquid breaks
7: the surface tension, so it makes the whole thing more accurate.
5: Okay. so the bottle is very, very full. The tube has now stopped dripping. So I guess the next thing we need to do is put the coins in the water.
7: Yeah, that's right. So we'll start off with the South African ones.
5: There's quite a pile of coins there, so we'll have to put them in one at a time. So in they go, and as soon as we drop it in, I can see that it's displacing quite a lot of the water. Already it's gone up to nearly two grams, but we do have a good pile of coins to add here, so we're going to measure the volume of all of these coins and come back to you later on in the show to let you know which of these coins are pure gold.
4: (laughs) So if anyone's seen Ben and Dave running naked through the streets of Cambridge with lots and lots of money shouting Eureka recently, you will know why. Although, to be honest, if someone was going to lend me £10,000 worth of gold, I would probably take my top off as well.
2: You do anyway (laughs) For less About 10,000 (laughs) quid's worth of gold Uh, We've heard from Bob Dobbs Forager He's in Second Life listening to us And he says How many dating systems like carbon that you mentioned are there And what age ranges are they suitable for Well there's quite a few They're all radioactive dating Uh, The ones that spring to my mind straight away Is one called potassium argon That's a very long timescale And there's also uranium lead The half-life of uranium turning into lead Is billions of years On the order of the age of the earth About four and a half billion years So that can be used for very long timescales indeed you are listening to The Naked Scientist, of course, with Chris Smith and Katani, and we're going back 3,000 years to ancient Greek civilization uh, since we're talking about uh, turning the time back. If you want to join in on the programme, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. Now, on the way, how geophysics and magnets can help archaeologists to unearth ancient treasures, and that's because we've sent Mira off to Leighton Buzzard to find out. But first, to a story that's quite literally thousands of years old. Now, most of us have heard the tales of ancient Greece, and the majority of the time we just think of these tales as another good story. But there's now a team of classicists and scientists who think that the story told in one of the most famous of those ancient Greek texts, and that's the Odyssey, might actually be based on a lot more fact than fiction. And to explain how they've been doing this, uh, they've been looking into this 3,000-year-old mystery as a group and we've got the University of Edinburgh's geologist, Professor John Underhill we've also got Robert Bittleston he's a businessman but he also has a background in the classics and he's also the author of the book Odysseus Unbound by the way, and we also have Professor James Diggle, he's the professor of Greek and Latin at Queen's College, the best college at Cambridge University, so thank you all very much to all of you for joining us Uh, we'll come to John and Robert in just a minute so James, why don't you kick off first of all by telling us a bit about the background to this mystery
3: Yes, right at the beginning of European literature there stand these two great epics poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Iliad tells the story of the Trojan War, the Odyssey the story of Odysseus, king of the island of Ithaca, who also fought at Troy. Now, the Greeks believe that these two poems have been written by a poet they called Homer, but almost certainly no such poet as Homer ever existed. The poems as we have them were written down sometime between 800 and 600 BC, but they have their origins many centuries earlier. They're examples of a kind of poetry which we know as oral poetry, that is, poetry that was not composed with the aid of writing, but that was composed in the minds of poets, or bards, singers one might better call them, who were composing their verses off the hoof, extempore, before live audiences developing the work of their predecessors and in turn transmitting it to their successors, generation after generation of these oral poets, creating a vast body of oral verse, which eventually got written down, and of which the only two surviving examples are, are Iliad and Odyssey. Is the
2: fact that they weren't writing it down why they used poetry? because there are so many rules to how you create poetry. Uh, that Was that a way of making sure the meaning was faithful then?
3: Absolutely. And this is a reason why you can get things that were in existence in, say, Mycenaean times, 1200 BC, still being accurately reported, transmitted um, 600 years later, because the oral poets used formulaic phrases which got fossilized into their poetry. Once you developed a description of a place or an artifact there was no reason to change it And if
2: you did change it, the rhyme, even though they didn't rhyme, they were using the, the, the meter would be wrong, so they'd know that something was adrift.
3: Absolutely, the meter was a very strict meter So
2: how do we turn this on these ancient texts, the Odyssey, and and the present situation you find yourself
3: in, where you're involved in this 3,000 year old mystery? Yes Well, we're focusing on the Odyssey, specifically the location of Odysseus's island, Ithaca Where was it? Now, this may it seem a strange. It still exists, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it, that, that, that would seem to many people to be a very strange question to be asking, because there is indeed an island which the Greeks call Ithaki and we call Ithaca. And let's just focus on the part of Greece that we're talking about. We're talking about the west coast of Greece. That is the coast that faces Italy. Halfway up that coast, rather below Corfu, there's a group of three islands Ithaki, Zakynthos, and the one that's perhaps best known of all, Cephalonia, from Captain Karelian is mandolin.
2: And so what's the, the big question then? Why, why do we doubt that Ithaca, what we're calling Ithaki, Ithaca, why do we doubt that that's what we really think it is?
3: Because the text of the Odyssey gives us three very clear indications of where Ithaca lies and what kind of island it was. These are they, first of all, the Odyssey tells us that Ithaca is one of a group of four islands, but modern Ithaki is one of three Second, the Odyssey tells us that Ithaca is the furthest west and furthest out-to-sea of these islands, but Ithaki is the furthest east and closest to the mainland. And finally, the Odyssey tells us that Ithaca is low-lying, that is, it hasn't got any mountains, but Ithaki is a mountainous island with cliffs plunging sheer into the sea. So the big
2: question is, was the poet just using artistic licence when he wrote that and just thought, well, it doesn't really matter?
3: Well, you've got two options. That is one. The other is to say that we simply haven't found the correct island and given that we have found other places that are mentioned in the Homeric poems like Troy and Mycenae, these have been excavated, we know that they existed there's every reason to suppose that when the poet describes in great detail the island of Ithaca he is talking about a real island So let's bring Robert in Robert, how did you
2: actually begin to have the insight that we might be on the trail of the wrong island
3: here? Well,
0: I was fascinated by the description that James has just uh, given to us, uh, that here is an ancient poet describing a world in which his crucial island, the island of his hero, is furthest out to sea, furthest west, low-lying, and so on. And when I looked at the map, it was actually in the context of planning a summer holiday for the family some years ago, I thought, well, really, how can this be? How can somebody get it not just marginally wrong, but really, really wrong? And I wondered, as you've suggested, about the explanation that many, many scholars have uh, suggested in the past was the, the reason for this—that he just didn't know, or he didn't care—and you know, he was writing a, a poem after all, not a travel guide. But it seemed to me that that didn't really hang together at all, and, and the reason is um, it, it's a motiveless crime to misdescribe your crucial island in such a way that is to say either you do know where it is or you don't now if you do know where it is there's no reason for you to misdescribe it if you don't know where it is why describe it so specifically but incorrectly that the very first time you recite these lines to a bunch of sailors and greece is a small place they're going to say rubbish you know that isn't it's not there it's over here it would be like, you know, somebody today writing a play in which they say, you know, some, their lead character says without any sarcasm, oh, I come from New York, a beautiful city built on a, a steep hill on the west coast of America. I mean, it's just going to get contradicted and corrected within a very short time of its composition. So that's what drew me in. I thought this is a motiveless crime. There must be a different explanation for so this ancient you So what did you, think? What did you come up with
2: as an alternative suggestion?
0: Well, the alternative suggestion was this. Uh, There is clearly this major contradiction between how the poet describes Ithaca and the island that is today called Ithaki. And so my thought was to say, instead of assuming, as everybody seems to have, that the reason for the discrepancy is that the poet made a mistake, what about the alternative, that at the time he composed these lines, supposing they were absolutely accurate, but that something has happened since to change the landscape. That was the, if I can refer back to your earlier material, that was the Eureka moment.
2: Very good. Well, a good time now to bring in John Underhill, who is Professor of Geology at the University of Edinburgh. He's involved in this. John, so would this sit with you as something that could be a possible explanation for what was going on here?
1: Well, yes, I I first got involved with the geology of of Western Greece back in the 1980s when I did a PhD there. And although Thinia, this um, key valley that we focused upon, wasn't a primary um, area as part of that, it was one where I had interest and had looked at. uh, When the opportunity materialised to get involved in the project, I thought it was worthwhile, um, given that it was a very interesting theory but inherently testable Um, To be honest, I actually thought, my thought at the time, that it would be easy to refute, easy to disprove this particular theory. Uh, That's easy to say from Scotland, but when you go out into the the field, it actually proved much more hard to disprove the theory that Robert and James have come up with and and just uh, given to you on the ground.
2: So what they're basically saying is that there's been some massive ground movement which has made what was four islands become three islands, and that one of them is the original Ithaca.
1: Yeah, the western peninsula, Peliki, is very low-lying and there is a narrow valley called Thinia which separates it from the main part of Cephalonia. Of now, if that particular valley were once underwater, and we're talking 3,000 to 2,000 years ago because there are two independent references, one that uh, James has referred to, Homeric text of the Odyssey, the second is that Strabo, the first geographer... 2,000 years ago, around the time of Christ he was writing, actually says that there's a narrow isthmus where Cephalonia is narrowest uh, that from time to time saw waters, not always, but from time to time saw waters going from end to end now we know very specifically what he was describing because there are two uh, Roman settlements that he, he mentioned within his text they both lie on either side or at least the areas in which they governed lie on either side of this valley Now, the theory is very challenged in this valley, and we should not underestimate that. The valley itself rises to over 175 metres at the present day in the central saddle area. And the work that I've undertaken around the coastlines of Kefalonia indicate that we we cannot have recourse to uplift alone. Uh, Despite the uh, seismicity, the earthquake recurrence in the area, wave-cut notches and raised beaches in the area show us that uplift is insufficient. So we must appeal to other processes.
2: So what you're saying is that we can't just say, oh, the the land has risen to join these islands together. There must be something else going on. That's,
1: That's correct. And in this particular area, which we know to be the earthquake hotspot of Western Europe, it lies at the boundary between the Eurasian and African plates. It is in fact, Cephalonia is in fact, the seismically most active part of Greece and as the earthquake earlier today in western Greece, 6.5 magnitude in in western Greece testifies, this is really one of the most uh, active areas in the world, let alone uh, in Europe. So what
2: have you done to to test the hypothesis that these four islands have become three?
1: Well the first thing we did was um, ground geology, we mapped the area and it was clear from a very early stage that the surface geology is insufficient, insufficient to test the theory rigorously. You need to look beneath the ground. But what you can see on the ground in the area is that there is massive landslide and rockfall debris strewn across the valley surface, large boulders the sizes of houses, trucks and the like, which, as we know from the August 53 earthquake, which was depicted in Captain Corelli's mandolin, of course, there were uh, catastrophic failures of whole hillsides at that time and they've been captured on film and and they're in uh, the the record.
2: So you think there was a big landslide potentially that could have filled in the gap which previously was covered by ocean but filled in now by debris from a landslide. So does this mean then that you could find out historically if such a landslide
1: existed? Only by looking under the ground and I think we we would be foolish to think it was a single landslide. Catastrophic landslides occur um, regularly within this area. Indeed in in november of last year without an earthquake attached to it um a village niffy was swept away unfortunately uh, after a major uh, landslide from the eastern slopes of thinea test of the uh, the principle that we we are looking at
2: but you've done some drilling though haven't you to to answer this question
1: the first borehole that we drilled was back in autumn of uh, 2006 it was located on the eastern side of this valley uh, we Drilled down from a surface elevation of 107 metres, we drilled down 122 metres, so below sea level. And interestingly, that borehole found rockfall debris extending at least 40 metres below the current land surface, i.e. 67 metres above present sea level. But most importantly, the matrix to that borehole contained large boulders of Cretaceous and other limestone material derived from the eastern slopes, and a very young fossil called Emiliana Huxley, a marine fossil that is 80,000 years or younger. And actually, within this area, we know marine waters only reached the region within the last 5,000 years. So, a very interesting result.
2: Robert, this must uh, be extremely pleasing to you.
1: Well, I have learnt that one shouldn't
0: um, get too excited too soon as new bits of evidence come along. I think this, on the scale of things, this is a tough geological challenge. I, I'm sure John would agree. This isn't something that can be solved by uh, in a, a field study for a couple of weeks. But yes, it was very exciting uh, it, after that autumn drill hole when the borehole went right the way down, didn't encounter any solid uh, limestone, as John has said, and, and it encountered material which made us think is that consistent with the possibility that an enormous rockfall event or series of events came thundering down a mountainside, hit a body of relatively shallow seawater, and in the process of that perhaps thrust much of that water up into the air in such a way as to interpenetrate all the debris coming down and, and, and end up with these little tiny nano fossils that John's described? That's one possible mechanism, and there are other mechanisms, but what we are finding is that as this work is done... As John says, so far nothing's come along saying that's it, end of theory, it's impossible. But it's tough to interpret the data. It takes a lot of work, a lot of resource, uh, and, and a lot of, uh, fortunately, a lot of industry support that we're now getting for the project.
2: And James, you must be really pleased that uh, this has come to this point. But what, what do you think is going to be your next step from a classics point of view?
3: Well, um, I think what What I find so wonderful about this is that it mixes together a whole variety of disciplines. I mean, my particular interest is on the the literary and historical side, but it blends with that. Uh, Archaeology, geology, science of various kinds, mythology, just about everything. Um, So it's a wonderful multidisciplinary activity that we've got ourselves involved in. But if we can just go back to Troy and Mycenae. Troy was believed once upon a time, never existed. Heinrich Schliemann discovered it in the 1870s. Mycenae was then excavated. Now we think that we're on the brink of demonstrating that a palace civilization on Ithaca existed too.
4: Absolutely fascinating. That was uh, Professor James Diggle, Professor John Underhill and Robert Bittleston.
1: Stripping down science.
4: OK, let's do it.
1: The Naked Scientists.
2: It is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. and we also beam The Naked Scientist live into Second Life so if you'd like to come along and listen live and take part in the programme and meet some of our other listeners or at least our avatars they're from all around the world hello to all of you in Second Life this week here's how you join in you go to, at 6pm UK time and that's confusingly enough, 10am in the morning Second Life time you go to the Cilands Continent that's S-C-I-L-A-N-D-S, Cilands you search for The Naked Scientist Mansion and you can relax on one of our loungers and you can listen to the programme alongside all the other people who are there
4: very nice. Still to come on this week's Naked Scientists, we'll be finding out how some fish like salmon can survive in both salty and fresh water. But first, most of the secrets of the past are hidden underground. So the key to finding lost lands and historic remains is knowing where to dig. Well, now archaeologists have a number of clever tools to help them unearth what lies beneath without even going near a spade or a trowel, as Mira senthillingham explains.
8: These days, when searching for ancient remains and hidden treasures you don't need to have the magical map where X hits the spot, as you can now see into the ground using the powers of geophysics to find X for yourself. So this week, I'm in Leighton Buzzard in Bedfordshire to find out how to hunt for ancient remains myself. And here to help me is Chris Leach, geophysicist and director of Geomatrix Earth Sciences Limited.
9: Geophysics is really the science of trying to find what is down below the ground without actually having to dig a hole. We're looking for changes in the physical properties of the ground. If you've got a 10 hectare site that you're interested in that you think there might be archaeology underneath it, you're going to have to dig an awful lot of holes in the ground if you don't do any geophysics first to really find out what's there. With the geophysics, it allows you to very rapidly, relatively cost effectively, narrow down the areas which are really of great interest to the real archaeologists.
8: So, what are the techniques used?
9: There are several techniques which are useful for archaeological geophysics and we tend to look for the magnetic signatures of the ground, we tend to look for the electrical properties of the ground and also we use uh, the growing technique of ground-penetrating radar, therefore looking at the electromagnetic properties of the ground.
8: Well, the equipment that you have strapped to yourself here is basically a horizontal pole with two vertical poles attached on either side and a rucksack That's strapping you into it, really. So which technique does this piece of equipment use?
9: This is a magnetometer. Therefore, we're actually measuring very, very precisely changes in the Earth's magnetic field at this point. The two vertical poles are actually two separate magnetometers, so we can measure the Earth's magnetic field in two places at the same time, and... The horizontal pull you describes feeds data back into a small data logger. By having two magnetometers, we can speed up our operation, we can acquire two lines of data right at the same time.
8: So how does a magnetometer actually measure the magnetic field beneath it?
9: Each of the tubes, which we mentioned earlier, contains two flux gate sensors, and these measure very, very precisely the Earth's magnetic field in the vertical component. And by measuring it in two different places, we can get a measure of the change in the magnetic field over that distance. In this instrument, it's one metre between each sensor. So we're measuring the the vertical gradient of the Earth's magnetic field in two places simultaneously.
8: How does this actually then translate to tell you where things are located?
9: All materials have got a magnetic signature, be it different types of soils or man-made objects such as bricks or artefacts of some description. And if we can measure the magnetic field with sufficient accuracy and sufficient resolution as we go over the ground, we can see very small changes in the Earth's magnetic field.
8: So you have this magnetometer set up and strapped on, ready to go. So what's the next step to take a reading from this field that we're in?
9: Well, we've got our grid set out. We're at our starting point, so all I need to do is press Go...
8: Okay, so what's happening now?
9: We can see the data being acquired on the screen, we can see the numerical values being displayed, and the beeping that you can hear is just telling us that the instrument is working every time it takes a reading, we get the beep.
8: How do you go from scanning an area to then producing an entire map pinpointing the hotspots of where's good to dig?
9: The traditional way of doing it with archaeology is to divide your field up into a series of grids which may be 20 or 30 metres square and then you'll walk up and down lines maybe one or two metres or if it's a high-resolution survey, half a metre apart and so on, creating these grids until you've covered the whole area. The more modern way of doing it is to use GPS, in which case you don't have to lay out your grids. The GPS will navigate you up and down lines. Once we have covered that, we can then take the data back to our office. And using a mapping programme, we can then produce a map in various styles, which highlight various different archaeology or soil types, if you're doing geoarchaeology, for example. Once we've got a map, we can start to see patterns emerging. We're obviously going to get a lot of background clutter, which would just be natural occurring rocks and other pieces of what i would call junk which may be things like nails that have fallen off people's shoes or horseshoes for example or beer bottle cans etc etc these little things you can't really see when you're out in the field you can't tell them whether they're real archaeology or whether they're man-made rubbish but once we make a map out of them we can tell one from the other
8: Okay, so out in the field, I just need to stick to my grid and record regular measurements to cover the whole area. So I'm off to hunt for some treasure.
2: As Mira Senthalingam with Chris Leach from the Geomatrix Earth Sciences, explaining how buried objects can affect the Earth's magnetic field, and if you can detect those changes, then you can also tell where to dig. Incidentally, on the subject of this kind of thing, Mike in Cambridge got in touch uh, about our dating methods question, and he says, Don't forget also about thermoluminescence, which you can use for pottery, that's another way of doing it. Also, obsidian hydration and uranium trail dating, where you observe the trails left behind by uranium decomposition. So, thanks, Mike.
4: Ah. Coming up shortly, we're going to be returning to Ben, Dave and their gold booty to find out whether Archimedes' method really can help you to tell pure gold from gold that's not quite so pure. But first, it's time to welcome the incredibly pure Diana O'Carroll <laughs> back to the studio
10: for a question this week that we need to take with a pinch of salt. Diana. Hello, Kat. Uh, yes, I do like a little bit of salt on my fish and chips. So uh, that leads me very nicely onto this question of the week.
7: Hi, my name is Will Jimenez, and I'm calling from San Diego,
1: California in the US. My question is, how do fish like salmon cope while being able to live parts of their life in both saltwater and freshwater?
10: Too much salt could cause cell death and eventually fish death. So how does your haddock keep from becoming as briny as the ocean?
11: Hello, I'm Mark Briffer from the University of Plymouth, where I'm a marine biologist with an interest in behavioural ecology. Osmolarity describes the concentration of solutes, in a solution. And the problems that marine and freshwater fishes face are really two sides of the same coin. In freshwater fish, there's a tendency for water to move into the body, leading to bloating and a loss of salts. And for marine fishes, there's a tendency for water to move out of the body, leading to dehydration and excess salts. And the most obvious trick to cope with these problems is to place a barrier between the inside of the body and the environment outside and the skin of the majority of fishes, both marine and freshwater, is relatively impermeable to water. But fish do need some permeable surfaces for respiration, and water still moves between their tissues and the external environment. And freshwater fishes avoid water gain by not drinking and producing large amounts of urine. Marine fishes avoid water loss by drinking Producing small amounts of urine. And in addition to these mechanisms, uh, freshwater fishes use their gills to absorb salts, and marine water fishes use their gills to secrete salts. And when salmon and eels migrate between freshwater and the sea, there's a change in the cellular structure of their gills, which enables their gills to start secreting salts, just like a normal marine fish. So all bony fish have to osmoregulate. And since they first evolved in the sea, it might appear that this would be easier for marine fishes, but this is a bit of a red herring.
10: Uh-huh. Uh, generally, fish are able to osmoregulate by producing different concentrations of whey. Only a very few species are isotonic or as salty as the sea. So if you want a pet fish, then remember, a freshwater tank is likely to become less piddly, as the urea concentration per fish wee is much lower. For, uh, fish urine is all very well, but I'm not sure I'd like to know what would come out after a diet of burned pizza.
11: Hi, I'm Alan Wensky from Berkeley, California. Recently, a friend of mine was telling me about a pizza that he burned to the point of becoming a charred husk ten times smaller than the original. At that point, I realised that this pizza had now become a very low-calorie alternative to its former self. And my question is whether all types of cooking result in loss of calories as
10: well. So after your diet of pizza, you might want a little resuscitation. Hi, I'm Becky from Bishop and um, My question is, as that mean can strike in the same place twice, if you get struck by lightning and it stops your heart, and then they get struck by it again, but it restart your heart. So, can we lose weight by literally burning off the fat? And might a second strike of lightning restart your heart? Send your answers on an e card to question of the Week at thenakedscientist.com or postulate away on our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum.
0: The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com.
4: You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Kat Arnie. And now it's time to go back to Ben and Dave, who are celebrating the science of the original naked scientist, Archimedes, to see if they can find pure gold.
5: Welcome back to this very, very special kitchen science where we are using some genuine gold coins to investigate some science that's over 2,000 years old. The Greek scientist Archimedes was asked by the king if he could find a way to work out if a crown had been made with pure gold or something else. And we are doing our own version of that experiment with three piles of gold coins. So, Dave, what have we done to set this up? We're trying to find the densities of the different
7: coins, because gold is one of the densest materials that there is.
5: And in order to work out its density, we've measured its mass and also its volume. We've
7: been measuring how much water the coins displace when we put them into a bottle. We
5: weighed all of these earlier, and the Canadian gold coins, these were slightly smaller, were 312.6 grams. So how much water did they displace?
7: They displaced about 15.5 grams of water, which means they had a volume of about 15.5 millilitres. And so we can measure the density by dividing the mass by the volume, which comes out at about 20.1 grams per millilitre.
5: Now, the second set of coins we weighed were, in fact, the South African coins. Now, these were a little bit bigger and weighed 340.6 grams. Now, how big a volume did they come out in?
7: They displaced about 17.9 millilitres of water. When you do the sum, it comes out as a density of about 19.1 grams per milliliter, which is significantly less than the first set of coins. This density is slightly above what you'd expect from pure gold gold but to be honest the equipment here is quite primitive but it does show there's a difference between the two types of coin so which of these are pure gold well the slightly smaller coins are probably actually pure gold the larger coins have had had something else added probably copper because if you add copper to a gold coin it makes a bit harder a bit tougher so if you carry them around in your pocket they don't get as badly damaged
5: OK, so we have discovered that the Canadian coins are pure gold and Archimedes would have used exactly the same trick to work out if the crown was pure gold or if the crown had some copper mixed in. And what did he find?
7: Well He found that there had been some copper added to the crown, which meant that the goldsmith had walked off with some gold on the side and the king wasn't too happy about
5: this and I wouldn't like to have been that goldsmith. No, indeed, but ancient science leading to ancient justice. So we also had a third pile of coins. Now, these weighed a suspiciously light 18.6 grams for the whole pile of coins. And we haven't yet measured the density of these. So let's just see how dense these are. Dave, if you could drop them in the water. And I can read off on your scales there that these have displaced 13.7 grams of water. So that means 13.7 millilitres.
7: So what's the density of those? That means density is about 1.35 grams per milliliter, which isn't looking good for them to be gold. And it's a lot
5: closer to what I'd expect for chocolate. Well, they do say you're supposed to bite into gold to see if it's real. Dave, are you going to bite away? That takes rather too good to be gold. (laughs) (laughs) So leftover gold coins from Christmas. (laughs) So this is how Archimedes, the very original naked scientist, discovered how if you put an object in water, it will displace an amount of water equal to its volume and used this to find a thief in the king's court. So thank you very much, Dave, and thank you very much to the very, very kind listener who lent us this gold so we could do this experiment. We promise we'll give it all back. That's it for Kitchen Science this week. We'll be back with more very soon.
4: I'm sure you gave it back, Ben. That's why you've got a new Mercedes outside. (laughs) No-one's
5: seen Dave since.
2: It's just (laughs) disappeared. He's gone
4: to the Bahamas. Anyway, that was Kitchen Science with Ben and Dave testing out the science of Archimedes, the Eureka Streaker. If you want to try this out at home but don't happen to have £10,000 worth of gold to play with, you can try comparing the density of 1p coins from before 1992 with those made afterwards. You can sort them out quite easily. Just put them near a magnet. The ones that stick are the new ones. Do drop us an email to let us know if you do this experiment. What you find out on Chris at the Naked and now quick question for you, Chris from Genevieve in the USA: Why does the sound of nails on a chalkboard get such a physical reaction from us?
2: It does. It's horrible, isn't it? Uh, when someone, when the guy in Jaws scrapes his fingers down the finger down the blackboard, and you feel your whole spine tingling. The reason for this is not 100% known, but there is a theory, and the theory is that the kind of frequencies that you get when you get fingernails down a blackboard experience is similar to the kind of frequencies that animals release when they're in distress, and so it's a kind of distress signal, and therefore we we are sort of pre-programmed or galvanised into action by those particular choice of frequencies, which is why it has that alerting or scary effect fabulous. Well that's it, we've pretty much run out of time. I, I just have to say a very big thank you to our guests this week who is Robert Bittleston James Diggle and John Underhill for telling us the story of real Ithaca and thank you very much to our wonderful production team Mira Thillingham, Ben Vowsler, Petra Minch and Anna O'Carroll. Next week we're exploring the science of volcanoes including mud volcanoes so send us any questions chris at nakedscientist.com
0: the Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.